Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Wednesday, September 18th edition of the Jeff Andreas Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. On today's program, I'm going to be talking about the issue of birth tourism here in Canada. Is it on the rise? Are people coming from out of country to give birth? Well, we'll be talking with Andrew Griffith more about that in a little bit. I also have the TNRD board chair, Ken Gillis, coming in to talk about the issue of people living in temporary homes and why they're being evicted. And I also will be ending the show off talking to Brandon Batchelor, the Vancouver Canucks play-by-play man on Sportsnet 650. Big preseason win for the Canucks last night, and of course, Brock Besser signing that new contract here earlier this week. But to kick things off, I am joined by Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Ken, as always, thanks so much for joining me. It's my pleasure. So, an- another council meeting yesterday, and uh, the city's recreation master plan was among the topics, I guess, looking at potential needs when it comes to things like ice sheets, pools, sports fields, and, and an arts center as well. So let's start with that arts center. I mean, is it something that, it is something that many in the community have been wanting for a while. I guess, just where's Council out with this project. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people just by the title, a recreation master plan, wouldn't have thought that the arts would have been included. But when we were out and uh, surveying the community about what uh, amenities they're missing, it was pretty loud and clear that an arts center was something that they really wanted to see. So the consultant uh, included that in there. And so uh, it's probably uh, better described as a recreation arts and culture master plan. But uh, it does uh, speak to the the issue that, uh, you know, when you look at the amenities we have in the city, the TCC, Mac Island, some really creative things that previous councils have put uh, out there, uh, the one thing that's obviously missing is a, a place for the arts. And the survey was done around the time that Sagebrush Theatre was having the problems mm-hmm. with the roof, and so that became a top-of-mind issue to a lot of people. So uh, as we did the consultation, it was raised. And so now, uh, you know, it, it's included in the Recreation Master Plan. Going forward, uh, you know, we anticipate before the end of the year to have before council a business case that will really start to talk about the dollars and what this facility would have and what it wouldn't have. And uh, that then would give us the basis upon which we could take the matter to a referendum. Okay, so that uh, that project is definitely on your radar and something that you guys will be looking at, uh, you know, more and more here as we as we move along. It really is. The, there's a Camelops Performing Arts Society uh, that has formed, mm-hmm. and uh, now they're selling memberships, and uh, they seem to be quite active out there. I think their goal is seven thousand members. So uh, I think it speaks to the fact that the the time is now for something like this. I believe you were the the first member of that group as well. I was. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know Ice Sheets is also a part of the report. It mentions that ice rinks are. Uh, basically being used at capacity right now. Um, I guess, do you, do you think there is a need for more for more ice here in Kamloops? The, the consultant uh, talked about, uh, you know, adding uh, three to four more sheets of ice. It's always an issue of who gets the best times, right? right? You know, so uh, you've got the, the master's men playing at 11 o'clock at night and they got to work the next day and it's affecting their numbers and that kind of thing. And then you've got people getting up at four in the morning to get kids out to peewee hockey. Uh, so it, it's really a question of uh, timing and, uh, you know, whether or not uh, uh, people are convenient uh, in terms of their allocation of ice time. The other part of that, too, is the the, the sports teams, uh, you know, the Blazers and the Storm, uh, you know, certainly supporting those with the public amenities that we have. 
and then the fact that uh, you know we used to have uh, extra ice on the Tecumlips to Shequemic Reserve and that's no longer available so the consultant uh, suggested that we would look at additional ice but he also was quite clear that you should really try to bundle these things up so you know don't put a single ice sheet right. uh, you know in Valley View kind of thing that is a, a model from yesteryear uh, what you ought want to do is have a place where you could have uh, four sheets and right. better for tournaments better for ice making equipment better for parking those kinds of things so that was his uh, advice to us going forward makes sense but that, i'm sure that's not something that's in the immediate future at this point given that ice rinks are are pretty big infrastructure projects uh, they are it's not certainly on the immediate horizon um another thing that was part of this plan as well was talking about the need for a new pool i believe was was one issue i guess just uh, what what uh, was discussed in that regard i mean is there enough pools in this city for people or, or is there a need for one more i believe one more was what was being recommended yeah they did recommend uh, additional uh, indoor pools uh, you know the uh, support uh, the support uh, is really growing in terms of competitive swimming uh, the piece that we're missing here is diving and whether or not we look at a diving tank uh, to uh, handle that uh, need in the community and uh, also the utilization of the Y uh, you know their facility is aged and uh, getting near the end of its life expectancy so you know uh, is there a plan in place going forward when you take that out of the mix so those were the kinds of things that we talked about uh, yesterday and uh, I think uh, the consultants uh, RC and uh, Perk did a really good job in terms of assessing what Camels has and you know he said that you you know our moniker of being the tournament capital of Canada has served us well and that for a town of our size we have a tremendous resource in terms of recreation facilities here he just wants to make sure and we want to make sure that we don't fall behind yeah and given that yeah we are the tournament capital of canada our recreation master plan is probably a pretty important document for for a city trying to maintain that moniker so i guess can you just tell me how long this plan is is there a, a, a number of years that's attached to it, it well it would be a 10-year plan a 10 -year we're, we're trying to do these things in a 10-year kind of increment going forward uh, you know for all of the uh, uh, different plans that we're doing right now and and so we have a an opportunity then to include any capital expenses expenditures into a five-year uh, financial plan so we're not hitting the taxpayers with a surprise every so often mm -hmm. right of course and and we can plan and we can start looking for grants uh, and there are a lot of grants available for uh, many of these projects. Uh, here with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Uh, another plan that was on last night's or yesterday's agenda was the Transit Future Action Plan. I guess, can you provide a, a quick one rundown of what was discussed in, in that plan yesterday, what sort of the plan is for uh, future transit moving forward? Yeah, you know, essentially they looked at uh, three uh, routes, uh, the uh, number seven, the number nine, uh, and uh, they looked at additional bus shelters and they looked at another transit exchange uh, and they have uh, done a, a fair uh, extensive review of uh, our transit system. Of course, we've just added hours to the transit system. Uh, but as I said yesterday in the conclusion of the debate, you know, here we are at a time in September when we've added hours we've added a whole bunch of riders because of school and we've got a whole bunch of construction that's messing up our schedule so probably not the best time to uh, critique the transit system but what we did decide was that the uh, development and sustainability committee would take a deeper dive into uh, you know some of the issues in terms of uh, people's perception of transit in Kamloops to uh, really try to get our ridership up we're, we're doing well for a, a system of our size but we really want to 
see more people in public transit. What do you think is the biggest hindrance, I guess, for people not using transit? Is it just the the mindset of kind of what transit means to people who are using it? Like, obviously, there's sort of a, a bad taste or, if you will, a, a bad reputation for those who take transit sometimes, but I, I don't think that's necessarily fair. Um, I mean, what, what's it going to take, do you think, to, to increase ridership? One thing I've heard is, you know, maybe the hours of service aren't the best. It could be open earlier or open later, which help people get to work, and maybe it would be more a viable option for transportation. I guess, what, what, what sort of things do you think it's going to take to really increase that ridership numbers? You know, what I hear is, is ex exactly what you've touched on. Uh, it's convenience, like does it go from point A to point B? So that's that whole transportation demand management piece. And then time of day, day of week kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I can't get to work at Walmart on a Sunday and this kind of thing. So those are impediments. Uh, but remember, we, we're a pickup top truck town, right? So uh, the transition from uh, single occupancy vehicles to public transit is a, a big mind shift. And so we need to kind of promote that. And it's better for the environment. It leads to less congestion and it should be cheaper. So. Well, people do complain about parking downtown and if you want to not have to park, take the bus, right? Um, so UBCM conven convention is uh, set for next week. Uh, five days of, of meetings, I guess, set up for you guys. I guess, what is on your agenda while you're down there? I'm sure you got quite a busy schedule coming up. Yeah, uh, you know, th there's the convention itself, and, and uh, as I mentioned yesterday, it's uh, Councillor Arjun Singh who serves as the UBC pre mm -hmm. uh, president. It's his uh, uh, sort of uh, final uh, event, uh, and uh, so uh, to be there and to support him and, and to see the convention, all the resolutions, the keynote speakers, and, and the like of that. But uh, we take advantage of the fact that the province of British Columbia makes their ministers and cabinet available to local governments, so we have ministers ministerial meetings with uh, uh, the Minister of uh, Solicitor General, uh, Minister uh, Melanie Mark, we have Minister uh, Fleming for Education, uh, we have uh, Carol James, the Finance Minister, and there are a number of other agencies like the RCMP, BC Hydro, uh, uh, Fortis, uh, those kinds of utility companies that we take advantage of uh, talking to while they're there. So it's going to be uh, action-packed five days and uh, we'll be uh, covering a lot of ground and uh, have uh, hopefully an opportunity to get Kamloops's issues in front of cabinet uh, in in a in a very meaningful way next week. Um, when when you're talking to the RCMP, I guess what what are you looking to discuss specifically with them? That seems like a bit of a unique opportunity at this convention. Yeah, you know, I mean the E division runs BC and the Yukon, and and uh, this is an opportunity to meet with the senior leadership uh, there. We often meet with the Southeast District where Kamloops is situated in, but uh, this gives us a chance to to speak to the uh, commissioner for British Columbia. A couple of things that we're talking about directly is the whole keeping of prisoners issue. Uh, this was an agreement that was done in 2002, and it really does not reflect the cost of keeping prisoners in today's uh, situation where you have people with uh, special uh, dietary needs, medical needs, medication needs, all those kinds of things. So we, we get between 6 and $10 an hour for a prisoner, and prisoners cost us uh, over $20 an hour to keep. So, you know, uh, you know, think of that when everybody says we should be arresting everybody. 
uh, that's a, a $200 night. If we're going to have them in jail, you mm -hmm. could probably get a hotel and breakfast for that. So, you know, we need to look at that whole keeping a prisoner's peace and, and the costing for that. Uh, as well, we want to uh, lobby for, uh, oddly enough, more uh, resources for rural detachments, and in particular the Tecumlips to Shequemic detachment here that covers uh, both the KIB but also, uh, you know, the Sun Rivers development, Tobiano and Sun Peaks. So uh, they are under-resourced and, and certainly the opportunity to have more resources for them means less coverage that we would have to provide from the citizens and the city of Calms. Well, good, good stuff here, Ken, as always. I really appreciate your time. Unfortunately, our time is up. But uh, again, thanks so much for coming in. Always appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. That was Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian. Coming up after the break, birth tourism. Is it an issue here? Well, stick around to find out. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back in here on Wednesday, September 18th. Birth tourism is a growing trend here in Canada with people coming from out of the country to give birth, which of course gives their children automatic Canadian citizenship. And this then allows these kids to get domestic education prices when it comes to post-secondary. They can also sponsor family members to migrate here in the future. It just seems like a way to potentially cheat the system. How big of an issue is this? Well, I am joined on the line now by Andrew Griffith, a fellow at the Environ Environics Institute and the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for inviting me. So maybe just give a quick, quick rundown of sort of where things are in Canada as a whole. Can you just give me the numbers for birth tourism here in Canada? Well, the latest number that we have for the last fiscal year ending in March is about 4,100 births to non-residents. Now, that in does include some international students and some other categories, but uh, my guess is that about at least half or the majority are, in fact, birth tourists. And the numbers were up about 13% over the past year. So that's a pretty big jump, 13%, and, and I understand that there is a, a bigger number here, specifically when we're looking at BC, and even more specifically in Richmond, seems to be one of the hotspots for birth tourism. Uh, that's correct. Um, Richmond, in many ways, is the epicenter of birth tourism in Canada, um, roughly between sort of one-fifth and, and one-quarter of all births in Richmond are to birth tourists, and we have enough... Uh, anecdotal evidence and media accounts that the majority of the non-resident births in Richmond are in fact coming here just for uh, birth tourism uh, reasons. Um, the other hospital in Vancouver that also has a significant number is uh, St. Paul's Hospital. It had about 139, um, which is also a fairly large number. So, I mean, I think your data looked at, I believe, the top 25 centers or hospitals in Canada that have these high rates of, of birth tourism. Uh, when, when you look at those 25 hospitals specifically across the board, I guess, can you make any connection or correlation as to why those centers do see higher numbers? Well, they're generally, um, and I didn't have the updated Montreal data, but generally these centers are close to the major airports, which makes sense. Easy flight connection, so if you want to fly in and fly out for to give birth, you wouldn't necessarily go to a remote location to do that. You do it in one of the major metropolitan centers. And I think Richmond also benefits, you know, it's uh, right in the air, where the Vancouver airport is. There's a large, um, or at least a, there is a presence of a sort 
of a, a birth tourism industry of uh, you know consultants who organize packages, birth hotels which uh, sort of provide uh, care for the uh, mothers giving birth and preparing to give birth. Can you kind of go over why you're collecting this data and sort of what it could potentially be used for? Like, why is this information important? Well, I mean, I I like data, and I just found <laughs> this data set interesting, so that's how I got into it. But I think more fundamentally, um, as you mentioned in your intro, um, there's a perception that this is sort of gaming the system or being a short circuit to citizenship compared to the route that immigrants face where they, they come here, they settle, they get employed, um, they they reside here for three or four, me- four years, and then they apply for citizenship through the, through the regular application process and, and requirements. And this is just a way really to short circuit that process. Talking birth tourism here with Andrew Griffith. So, um, I mean, can you break down at all some of the numbers in terms of what people are here to do when they are here, you know, giving birth and are pregnant? I mean, are they coming here for two, three months specifically for the purpose of, of having a child while they're here? Or are there more people here for schools? Or can you even break that data down just yet? Right now, we can't. Um, as a result of some of the earlier research, IRCC, the Immigration Department, has started a study along with Statistics Canada and the people who collect health information to see if there's a way to link the immigration status of those non-residents giving birth um, with the medical data. Uh, so that you can actually serve out of the, the numbers I have, you could actually sort of narrow it down to those who are actually on visitor visas rather than the broader category. But that work is going to take some time to be done. It's data linkages, so it's a bit of a complex uh, process. But that should allow us to, uh, well, allow the government to answer that mm-hmm. question. Yeah, so then I, I guess they will know if there are people actually taking advantage of the system. Um, so these numbers you had mentioned to me when we, we spoke earlier that these uh, birth tourists account for only 1% or, or maybe even less than that than all births in Canada. So it's not like there's some sort of epidemic here of people abusing the system, especially when we do take into account the fact that many of those people are here for, you know, work or school or or for some legitimate reason. Uh, But when you do say that there was a 13% increase in birth tourism over one year, I guess, was that a trend, do you think, or was that just an anomaly? Because obviously when you look at that, that's a pretty huge increase year over year. Well... Overall, there's been a steady increase from 2010 when the data set that I have uh, started. So year to year, there's an increase. This is a steeper increase um, than some previous years. Um, but I've never seen, you know, in the last eight, ten years, it always goes up. Um, and that, you know, so, so I think that there is a trend there. In terms of your overall point, is it, you know, it's 1%, is it a big issue? Um, in general, probably not the biggest issue uh, that we've had to face. It's clearly an issue for the people in Richmond who feel that uh, they're being crowded out of their hospitals, uh, but that's sort of more of a local issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, uh, it, you know, in terms of the numbers, it's not significant. In terms of the perception of the integrity of the citizenship process and the citizenship system, um, it, there, it does become a bit of a political uh, issue in that sense. Well, Andrew, unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. 
Well, likewise. Have a good day. You as well. That was Andrew Griffith talking about birth tourism. For those wondering what the situation's like here in Kamloops, there were five deliveries in 2018-19 at RIH for out-of-country patients. The two-year prior fiscal years, there were less than five, so a very small number. Coming up after the break, I'll have TNRD Board Chair Ken Gillis in studio to talk about what's happening with people being evicted from temporary homes after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back and thank you so much for tuning in as always. The TNRD wants people to not use recreational vehicles as year-round permanent homes. We did a story here on at NL last month on this, which had quite a bit of reaction. I also did a follow-up late last week with one individual who received an eviction notice and she's worried that there is nowhere else to go. Joining me now to talk about this issue is TNRD Board Chair Ken Gillis. Ken, thanks so much for coming in. Hi, thanks very much to you, Jeff. It's a, a wonderful opportunity for us to set the record straight. We could start with that word eviction. Yes. We do not do evictions in the TNRD, so that's, uh, that's just for beginners. And there's been a lot of misconceptions out there, and it's a great opportunity for us uh, that you have granted to set these things straight. Yeah, so uh, one thing you wanted to clarify as well, you said to me yesterday that this is not a crackdown. That's not the right terminology. I guess, so how would you describe what's taking place? What, what terminology would you use? Yeah, there was one other media outlet that has been using the word crackdown, and there was no crackdown. There was never any intention to have a crackdown. And the funny part of it is, really, if we wanted to have a crackdown, we couldn't because we don't have the staff. We have one bylaw officer for 45,000 kilometers of square kilometers of TNRD. Uh, nobody is going out and looking for um, people living in RVs on a permanent basis. But we do have a bylaw that prohibits that, and so there's been a, a lot of misunderstanding. So, in terms of that misunderstanding then, so from the people that I've talked to who say, you know, they're, they're worried they're being kicked out of their homes, I guess, what, what is the actual scenario that is taking place? If they're not being evicted, I guess, what, what uh, you know, what is happening to these individuals? Well, for one thing, there have been three I think, uh, letters that were sent out in the, since the beginning of the calendar year. And I'm told by our staff that that is right on average for, for uh, our enforcement mm -hmm. people. The, uh, the process is long and involved. You get a, a warning letter and then you get a, you know, a, a further letter saying essentially that this, can, this situation cannot continue and you should remove the, the uh, vehicle by such and such a date or something along those lines. But it's certainly not an eviction order. Normally what happens is that those letters bring people in to the office to talk to our staff. We have resolved the vast, vast majority of these situations through discussion and negotiation. There is a perception there that you can't live in your RV under any circumstances. That's completely incorrect. If you have a building permit and you're actively engaged in the building of a house, you can live in your RV while you're doing that. And that's built right into the bylaw, that provision. And the, and the building permit exists for three years. So, you know, it's not as if, uh, as if there's no provision for that. And I'm, I'm really distressed that the, the perception seems to be out there that the big bad TNRD is turfing old people in wheelchairs out onto the road and nothing of the kind is happening. Nothing of the kind has ever happened. We have always been open to hearing from people who have special circumstances or, un, or where undue hardship would result if they were 
compelled to comply with the bylaw. Now, in some extreme circumstances, we've made exceptions. That's not the rule, certainly, but we do, and we're not the, uh, in the business of evicting people. We have no right to evict people when it comes down to it, unless they're camped on TNRD property. So eviction is not a, a, a possibility. What we do do in cases where there's no uh, cooperation, no assistance, is eventually the matter will be turned over to the TNRD's lawyers. The lawyers will take the matter to court and the court will issue an order. But it, it seems to me that staff told me that's happened maybe twice in the past 10 years. So this is not a real possibility. So I guess what, what happened here that made this whole situation kind of arise? I mean, you guys have put out a press release, uh, I believe, earlier in the summer. So uh, that sort of drew everyone's attention, I guess, to the rules. I guess were people just not aware of the rules? And now that they are aware, there's just a, a massive concern. Is that sort of what's happening here? I think there's an element of that, Jeff. And, uh, and the intention of the press release was simply to make sure that people were aware of the rules in, in light of the fact that more and more people are moving into the regional district and may not be aware of those rules. They could drive past uh, um, a place where somebody is in possession of a building permit and living in an RV and get the impression, oh, well, that's okay, I can, I can just bring my RV, which is certainly not the case. The other thing is, uh, we have to admit, there was some misinformation sent out from our office too, which caused a bit of a stir, and, uh, and that was unfortunate. But generally, I think what brought it about was the press release and, and the misconception that resulted from that. Uh, here with TNRD Board Chair Ken Gillis. So uh, I guess if you have a message to anyone who is maybe freaking out or whatever term you want to use about, uh, you know, potentially being forced from their home, you're, you obviously said off the top that's not the case, but just what is your overall message to those who are, you know, stressed out about the whole situation? Well, certainly the most important message I think that I can deliver is that there's nobody out there driving around looking for people to, to um, have a force out of their RVs. We have a policy that uh, we only act in cases where there has been a, re a complaint received and no action has been taken against anyone where no complaint has been received. We always have to have a complaint first. The person has to be willing to sign the complaint, not just a, we won't act on an anonymous complaint over the telephone from somebody. It has to be a legitimate complaint. Then we will send the bylaw officer out to, to uh, see what's going on in the situation. And as I said earlier, usually they're resolved, but sometimes people are, uh, you know, recalcitrant and won't, uh, mm -hmm. and they're determined they're not going to comply. Those are the are the ones that generally end up with a with a notice of uh, order being issued. Um, when it comes to some people who you know are planning to build on their property, they bought property and they are planning to get a building permit but haven't done so yet and are living on an RV, um, that was the one situation that I was aware of where the person was told they have to have an active building permit in order to live there on a year-round basis. So, uh, you know, and they said, I don't know if it was they couldn't afford the building permit at this point in time or they were just worried the process was going to take too long. I guess what what... What should those people be doing? Should they just be applying for that building permit and sort of starting the process and going from there? I mean, how much does it cost, I guess, to even get that process off the ground? Is that a hindrance for some people and who are trying to, you know, make their property legitimate? Well, I think if you can afford to build, you can probably afford a building permit. <laughs> so I, I can't imagine that the financial constraints would prohibit anybody from getting a building permit. I checked with our chief uh, administrative officer yesterday, and the fact is if you have applied for the building permit, your exemption from the bylaw is effective as soon as you apply. So if you go in and apply for a building permit, pay the building permit fee, 
it, w it may take six or eight weeks for you to get the building permit, but nobody's going to come and try to order you off your property with your RV because you can say, look, here's my application, I've applied, I intend to comply, and nobody's going to take issue with you at that point. And there's one other, do we have a moment for yeah, one other? absolutely. There has been uh, concern that, uh, that people can't have their, their brother-in-law come and park in their backyard with an RV. We have never received, as far as I know, a complaint about that sort of thing, and we have never enforced uh, the bylaw against somebody who's camping on private property in his relative's backyard or in his friend's backyard. That's not the policy. And, uh, you know, we, we really do try to be cooperative with people and helpful with people rather than... We're not taking a confrontational uh, uh, position on this. And it's, it's sad that it seems to have developed into that. Um, anything else that you wanted to add specifically on that subject? You only have a couple minutes left here. So uh, just, is there any other message that you want to relay specifically on that topic? I did have one other, two other questions here, so. Yeah, sure. Um, one of them would be that uh, where people live in RVs, in many cases, there's lack of proper septic services. There's, uh, or systems. Sometimes they're near, lake, near lakes and water courses. Uh, there's a risk, perhaps, from uh, what I would describe as Mickey Mouse electrical connections. Everybody doesn't have a, an, an inadequate electrical connection, but some do. There is uh, the question in some cases, not all, but in some cases of unsightliness, because people add little sheds and shacks and one thing and another to their RVs. And so the property value of the adjoining property is diminished. And that's where the, we have a responsibility to the other people. We have a responsibility to the people who own the property next door, as well as to the people who are trying to live in their RVs. Perfect. Well, uh, that pretty much wraps, wraps up our time here, Ken. So thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having us, Jeff. It's an opportunity, as I said, to set the record straight. Thanks well, again. I'm sure we'll do it again in the future here. So uh, thanks again to Ken Gillis, board chair of the TNRD. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking Canucks with Sportsnet's Brandon Bachelor. So stick around for that. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show. The Vancouver Canucks played their first preseason game last night, a big 4-2 win over the Edmonton Oilers. And, of course, the big news out of Vancouver this week was that Brock Besser finally signed a new deal, signing a three-year contract that will pay him $5.875 million per season. That makes him the fourth-highest-paid player on the team, behind Louis Erickson, Tyler Myers, and Alex Edler, all making six. I am joined on the line now by Brandon Batchelor, Canucks play-by-play -play man here for Sportsnet 650. Brandon, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Yep, absolutely. No problem. So I want to start with the Besser contract before we kind of get into last night's game, if that's all right. Um, I think Jim Benning did pretty good on this one, especially with reports out there that he had turned down longer term at $7 million. Uh, Of course, there's the chance this comes back to bite them and he blows the door off over these next three seasons. But I guess, how, how do you feel about this contract moving forward right now? Certainly in the short term, it's a contract that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's a good number for Brock Besser to be at in terms of managing their cap situation, which I don't think it was in an incredibly dangerous 
position, but uh, the lower that Besser number came in at, the easier the uh, the juggling with the salary cap was going to be. So, um, you know, in in the short term, three year deal at that at that dollar figure makes a lot of sense. But you're right that the the concern could be in the long term that when they revisit this contract in three years from now, they might have to pay Brock Besser a much larger amount of money over a long-term deal to keep him as a Canuck than they would have if they had signed him to a seven- or eight-year term now. Uh, the positive uh, to waiting three years to do that, though, is that uh, some of the other big contracts they have on the books, most notably Louis Erickson, will will come off the salary cap because his deal expires. He's got three more years left on that. So that would create some more room for them to pay Besser if indeed uh, that is the way things go. And by that point, they'll have also negotiated uh, new deals with Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson. So they'll have a better idea of their long-term salary cap structure, but it certainly could cost them more money in the long term, as really has been the trend in the NHL. When we look at young players that have signed bridge deals, it's meant that uh, the money they get on a long-term deal afterwards ends up being quite a lot more than it would have been. I guess one of the positives, too, would be that this is a three-year deal. So, I mean, even when the contract expires, he's still restricted, right? So they, they still have full control over the player at that point. He is, although uh, his salary in the final year of the deal is going to be $7.5 million, which means uh, the qualifying offer the Canucks would have to extend him to keep him uh, their property as a restricted free agent after that third year would have to be $7.5 million. So that uh, is the minimum that, that he would be likely to make going into that following year afterwards. Uh, but yes, they will still have team control of him at the end of the deal. So it's not like they, they walked him to unrestricted free agency, which is what the Maple Leafs did with their deal with Austin Matthews. And, you know, some people in the hockey world believe that Matthews intends to go to free agency as soon as his uh, five-year contract uh, expires. So, uh, you know, the, the two sides met in the middle. It seems like they couldn't uh, couldn't come to an agreement on a dollar amount on a long-term deal. The Besser camp wanted more than the Canucks were willing to give. Uh, so they signed the shorter-term deal, but they don't do it uh, in a way where he becomes an unrestricted free agent at the end of it. Yeah, and that third year with the over $7 million, that seems to be the trend because I think Rowenski and uh, McAvoy both got the exact same sort of type of deals anyway when you look at their, their third year and the money they make in that final, final season. Um, were you at all surprised with the, the money given what happened with Mitch Marner? I mean, we were waiting on Marner to sign for forever, and then after he did, we've sort of seen this little windfall of players starting to sign. Obviously, there's still the Brandon Points and Rantanins and, and to Chucks of the world that still need to get done, but um, I mean, when you look at Marner making almost $11 million for six years, I guess, did, did you expect Besser to get a little bit more money just based on that signing? Uh, it's hard to compare the two, and, and initially I did, yes, but uh, you know, a short-term deal as opposed to uh, you know a six-year deal for Mitch Marner, who has produced at a much greater rate than than Besser. Certainly, the the deals weren't going to be comparable, but I did think that it would bring the market up a little bit. Uh, that said, when when it's a short-term deal, obviously the the average annual value is going to be a little bit lower. So, um, you know, initially heading into the summer, we had been talking about that Besser number being north of seven million, maybe around seven and a half, and I think most people assumed that that would be where the number would fall on a deal with longer term 
at about six or seven years, but it seems like, um, you know, from everything I've heard, the Besser camp wanted somewhere around eight million, if not north of that. And the Canucks weren't willing to go that high in terms of the average annual value. So that's why the, the shorter term deal makes sense. Yeah. And I'm sure he's also looking at that Marner deal thinking, I can't make that now, but if I have three solid years, maybe I'll, I'll be sort of in that stratosphere. Um, yeah. And, uh, and another, another big factor as well is, um, you know, the new TV deal that will be up uh, for the National Hockey League in the next few years that, that will bring a lot more revenue into the league. And because of that, people expect the salary cap to go up. So there are other economic factors that, that benefit these guys not necessarily signing long-term deals right now because, uh, as we've seen, you know, especially with some of the long-term deals, that have been signed. You can look at Nathan McKinnon's contract that at the time seemed like a fair deal. And now it looks like a huge bargain for the Colorado Avalanche yeah. just because how much player salaries have been inflated since then. I uh, hear with Sportsnet's Brandon Bachelor. So I guess let's talk about last night's game for a bit here. A nice 4-2 win for the Canucks. Uh, can you break this one down a little bit for me here, Batch? I mean, a good way for them, obviously, to get the preseason started. Yeah, it's it's so hard to uh, to really delve too much into these games because the the group that the Edmonton Oilers sent to Vancouver uh, looked a lot more like the Bakersfield Condors yeah. of the AHL than it did the Edmonton Oilers. They only, in terms of recognizable names, really had Adam Larson and Darnell Nurse in the lineup. Uh, but you know, the the first game in front of the home fans in Vancouver, uh, players that stood out to me, I thought Brandon Sutter had a good game. Obviously, he scores on a penalty shot and then adds another goal. Uh, Elias Pettersson, uh, you know, finds the back of the net and, and looked like he's working his way back into form. Uh, it's funny, he was actually pretty critical of his game when I spoke to him afterwards, and, and he, he's a perfectionist in that way where, um, you know, he could have a good night and, and he'll still want to talk about the, uh, the few little things in his game that he didn't like. So I think that's good news for Canuck fans that he's already nitpicking his game, uh, even though it was his first action of the preseason. So yeah, I wouldn't read too much into it in terms of what it might mean for the long term, just because these games with without a full NHL rosters can be pretty scrambly and you don't really know what to expect. And for veteran players, they're, they're kind of working their way back into form and, and aren't, I don't want to say they're not going a hundred percent, but they realize that these games don't matter mm-hmm. yet. And it's more about getting comfortable with game action again. So um, nice for them to win. Nice for the home fans to see them uh, skate away with a four, two victory. But uh, I don't know if any roster decisions, are being made based on the performances last night. Yeah, I guess, you know, always you want to probably look more at the performance of individuals as opposed to the actual scoreboard when it comes to preseason. Um, I did think Sutter had the, the play of the game when Edler gave him that slick feed from the uh, from the point for that tap-in, which I think was the eventual game winner. So, yeah, I thought Sutter had a pretty good game last night. Um, and you also were talking about Patterson. He got on the board last night as well, I guess. What, what are you looking at him for his ceiling this, this season if he can stay healthy? I mean, the, the health part, I think the biggest factor in his game right now i mean what what is the limit for this guy i mean is he a point of game player is he better than that what can we expect here going into his uh, second full season uh with elias patterson and the way he's come back into camp he he's put on weight he looks stronger he might have grown a little bit too um he's looked incredibly impressive out on the ice through training camp in victoria i, I legitimately think the sky is the limit for this kid uh if you said to me he's going to be a point a game player i wouldn't be surprised if you say he's going to be north of 90 points I wouldn't be surprised. Maybe the 100-point mark would surprise me in his second season, but at the same time, you know, this is a kid that 
continues to uh, improve and, and really has that drive. And that's something that's evident when you watch him in practice. Uh, he's one of those guys that stays out afterwards to work on extra things. It's evident when you speak to him. And again, you know, he scores a goal last night, his team wins, and he's still, you know, talking about the, the subtle things in his game. He didn't like uh, his production rate in the faceoff circle last night, even though I believe it was 46%, which isn't too shabby at all from a personal perspective. Um, but the fact that he always wants to be better every day, there's nothing that would surprise me in terms of a ceiling for this kid. Well, uh, I had to cut things a little bit short since I am running out of time there, but I will post the full interview with uh, Brandon Batchelor on uh, RadioNL.com slash podcast, so if you want to hear the whole thing, you can check that out online. That, of course, was Brandon Batchelor, Vancouver Canucks play-by-play man for Sportsnet 650. Well, thank you all so much for tuning into today's program. I think uh, it was another good one here, and uh, of course, uh, you know, a big thank you to all my guests for coming on, because you guys are the ones that help make the show happen. So, remember... Whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock.